This is Chasing Squirrels Podcast. And the track you hear in the background is Stints by Roy Starr. The full track can be found at the end of the podcast. More tracks can be found on SoundCloud. shift gears in the new year and it's not not necessarily you know speeding things up or slowing things down just a different approach to the podcast uh i managed to get myself into some new committees at school and i guess a part of being new year new me kind of a thing one of the committees one of the groups that i connected myself with is the book club at the high school that i'm i'm a teacher at and you know, going into these books and trying to find books and and connecting with books has always been, you know, a bit of a um, a challenge for me. Primarily because I find, in some ways, I've really shifted to digital books in a lot of ways. I mean, between audiobooks and things that I read on my iPad, it's not often that I actually have paper copy in front of me. So one of the challenges with helping out with this book club is that everything is paper copy and it's just the nature of the beast. It's the nature of the club. So when I was going into our school library and the librarian was asking me, you know, Clough, what, uh, what would you like to, which ones do you want? I'll have to say on the front end and Darren, I'm going to nod to you on this one i mean i was kind of joking on the pre-tape saying i picked the yellow book but part of (laughs) part of picking the the book that i did uh monroe versus the coyote was the fact that it it stood out to me i mean in the 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 stack that they were offering uh there were a lot of titles that caught my attention but it did definitely have a uh, a bit of a, a pop to the yellow color so good for you for for choosing that and without well i'd love to take I'd I'd love to take credit for that, mate. But uh, that's that's all my publisher and a fantastic designer who put that together. So they'll they'll be wrapped to hear that for sure. You know what? So let's I'll, I'll and again with the idea of, of switching gears around. I have a couple sort of my sketch note in front of me here of of questions that I want to throw down. But let's just let's let's leap off from there. Okay. So just first off, before we talk about we talk about the book, could you throw down just a little bit of a you can know we could look at it as an origin story. You could look at it as just a, a backgrounder. Um, who are you? And you could include where are you? And just anything else that you think uh, I would love to know, which is pretty much everything. But uh, what's your what's your mini bio? Well, first off, Chris, huge thanks for, for having me on here, mate. It's uh, it's terrific to be involved, and you're doing tremendous work. And uh, I know I speak for all authors, and in, in saying that. You know, folks who are who are keen on uh, promoting books and authors, uh, we you know they're the lifeblood for for us for sure. So appreciate your time for sure. Um, as mentioned, my name's Darren Groth. You may already pick up that I've got a bit of a funny accent, and that's because I was born in Australia and raised there. Uh, lived there for thirty seven years, and currently uh, I'm in Vancouver. And have been here for 11 years. I'm very proud to say that I'm a Canadian citizen. 
these days. So I'm a proud Canozzi, as I refer to myself. <laughs> and uh, married a, a beautiful Canadian who uh, lived in Australia for 20 years. And here's a little note to your students that you should be careful of. This is what Australia can do to you. My beautiful wife came to Australia for a six-month holiday and came back 20 years later with a husband and two kids. So watch out. That's what, that's what Australia can do. So be careful if you go on there. And uh, on the writing front, I've been writing pretty much seriously for about 20, just over 20 years. But I wrote a lot as a kid, had a fantastic teacher in grade seven called Mr. Wade. Shout out to Mr. Wade, uh, who was very big on creative writing. And, and he sort of turned the tap on for me with that. Um, he would get us to do a new story every week, which I know must have been death for most of the most of the students in the class. But it was it was fantastic for me. And then even through leaving school and through university, uh, I was I was writing. I actually did a human kinetics degree or human movement studies, as it was called in Australia, because uh, I was aiming to become a, a physical education teacher or gym teacher, which I did for thirteen years. But all the while on the side, I was I was writing. I was writing poetry and stories and all this sort of stuff. So in the end, I figured out that writing is actually what I do. And I've sort of, once I'd figured that out, my, my goal then became, well, if writing is what I do, how can I do it as often as possible? And that's really what continues to drive me to this day. And now we are sort of seven books along since since that uh revelation yeah you see you got me switching gears again okay so here's (laughs) here's let's i want here's one way we can make this really really concrete for let's say for the students they're going to be holding this book in their hand they're going to be in in, you know the yellow book monroe versus the coyote they're going to be looking at the cover the lead often for you know, book studies or media studies is, you know, reading the imagery in front of you. So between the font, the color, the organization, you know, the use of space on there. So just yep. on, on the offhand, were there, were there different covers that were released for this book? Yeah, it was published in Australia and as well. Uh, and the, the cover was completely different there. Um, the one thing I'll say, I'll say a couple of things about, about the cover for the Canadian US version, it's absolutely brilliant. Everything that is on the cover that forms the face of the coyote is actually relevant to the story. They're all moments or special things or important uh, elements of the story itself. And the, the, the font actually is interesting because that my previous novel, uh, was called Are You Seeing Me? And it did some fantastic things on both sides of the Pacific. And that that book was designed by my publisher in Australia, Penguin Random House. And the font, they actually used that font for that previous work. So it was one of those things where publishers look at, well, you've had some success with this book. We want to make sure that people sort of recognize that a little bit and recognize you. So they'll use some of the same elements and the font was one of those things that uh, that was consistent between those two books but that picture of the coyote I remember when I saw it the first time I thought this is absolutely fantastic whoever has put this together really knows the story 
and have have just done a brilliant job with it. And it's one of those things where a lot of people think that the author has a hand in the design um, and stuff like that. There is a reason why writers are not involved with anything visual because generally they're absolutely terrible like myself. Hmm. That's why we're word words people rather than pictures people. And generally publishers will sort of be kind to the author and include them in the sense of, well, here's the cover and maybe here's another one and we really like this one. <laughs> so they're sort of directing you towards the one that they really like. And generally, unless an author has pretty strong feelings about one, then uh, you'll just sort of fall into line. But that was a very easy thing to do with this cover. It was it was sensational. And I'd certainly recommend, you know, for, for folks who are reading it, you know, as you as you go through the story, uh, you'll sort of catch these these different elements and these different moments, and come back to the to the cover and see if you can identify all of those things that are going on. It's as as we're talking, I'm starting to realize how little I know about talking with authors. So I'm gonna and it's and I and it's funny. I don't I I don't take that as in I like I think I can do a conversation. I'm okay at conversation, and I'm a pretty good questioner. Um, but I also realize as I'm holding the book in my hand here. And I'm thinking about the pictures that are on the cover. To me, the the images are completely unlocked. Mm. And I think when I first when I first looked at the cover, I, I noticed um, all the different imagery in there, but I didn't have anything to hang it on. There was nothing there where I was like, oh, you know, this. Um, I, to, I, you know what? To be truthful, I didn't even notice the Canadian leaf in the nose. So there's a new little thing that I'm. So anyone that's doing the audio right now, go to the library, look online, buy the book. Um, so you can get the image into your head, but, um, I didn't have anything to hang it on. And it's interesting as a, as a summary piece, which often, you know, this could be a task within a classroom, um, you know, give an overview, like a visual essay. Yeah. It's, it's funny. I wish I had noticed, spent more time considering the images on the front before I went into the book. Like, I wish I had a, that was then this is now because everyone is so loaded with checkpoints. And where I started with this is not knowing how to talk to authors. And maybe it's just I don't know how to talk about books if someone hasn't read the book because I feel myself constantly creeping up on spoiler alert. Right, right. So I don't know if I should say that. <laughs> I don't know if I should say that at this point that I'm, I apologize if I drop something. I wish I had a sound effect. I guess I could bleep it out afterwards. We'll do it. I'll offer two versions of the podcast, the one with the spoilers bleeped out. Well, to be honest, Chris. But I dig the imagery. I, I was going to say, to be honest, Chris, I, I think I'm probably more of a risk of spoiler alerts. I tend to, to do that a bit. So I'll, I'll keep myself in check and I know, I know you'll do fine. We'll see. We'll see. Again, we'll, um, I guess I could do some editing afterwards. But maybe I will say that too because part of it is with it, when it comes to, I guess, a, a book club, I don't – when when the librarian said, "Yay, Clough, thanks for doing this," they didn't say, "Here's a, here's a way to come at it." Mm. They just said, "Here's the book," and I kind of like that freedom. I, I really do like yeah. that freedom, but I know I'm going to be high risk. I'm going to be high risk because there was a lot of little bits that drew my t- attention in this book, notwithstanding the the cover and the bits. Um, the font, that font is cool. Is that um, you going to keep using this font, or is this a is this a capsule? You think this is one that, or could you even say? I don't know, mate. I, I think um, it's it's possible that it, it would continue with more young adult uh, stuff. Um, I'm a curr- I'm currently working on an, 
something that I think will end up being considered adult literary fiction or general literary fiction. I don't think it it sits comfortably in in a YA space. Um, it's a story about uh, a failed service dog and a young young person who's on the autism spectrum and the boy is 13 uh, but the story is really told I think more from it's a third person uh, what we call a third person limited perspective and so it gives me a chance to sort of tell the story in a way that's a little different from most young adult stuff which is from first person and tends to get into the head of of the young person involved so that's a long-winded way of saying i'm not sure that this font and these designs would continue with my next immediate work but but i've got ideas for other stuff and and i should mention i mean the monroe is my second last release my most recent one which came out in september of this year is a story i wrote with my brother simon and it's a it's a departure from my previous stuff. Munro is probably what you'd consider to be contemporary realistic young adult fiction. Although I always like to, you know, the voice of the coyote and some other elements in there, I like to think are sort of touching a little bit upon magic realism, which is something I really love. But the most recent book, which is called Infinite Blue, which I wrote with my brother Simon, is a real dip of the toe in in that magic realist water. So, hence a, a very different design for that book, and it's absolutely that design is absolutely beautiful too. So I recommend people have a look at that. It's um, the feedback on that cover has just been quite amazing. So we'll see. We'll see if uh, you know some of those design elements continue on with with future work. So the coyote, and again, I'm going to kind of, I'm going to flow, flow with the go here. And I feel like the, um, you know, it, it, as far as the, the, the title goes, understandable, Monroe could be some dude's name, could just be someone's name, might not even be a dude. And then the, the conflict mm. that, that, that Monroe is, is up against the coyote so not coyote but the coyote kind of gives it a bit of a a general i felt kind of ominous i thought if any human was up against a coyote you know that's that's a ufc match that uh is in the making <laughs> but constantly constantly um well it sets up conflict i mean i i i'm i imagine that being intentional it's a little bit provocative um the cover picture has you know an animal head shape um and it it got me. It got me right away curious about the origin story of the coyote because mm. it it seemed to me like that would be the more mysterious character or the mysterious element of this book. And I have to say that as I read through the book, I constantly like I th- I mentioned to you my my process in reading is is post it notes, and I found like I have a lot of little post it notes that say something like, um, "Oh, where's a good one here?" Uh, Da, 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 da. Initial impression of the coyote. So that's somewhere around page six. I'm I'm dropping that one down. Page twenty one. Next impression of the coyote, and then uh, somewhere around page one twenty five. I'm like, okay, now what do you think of the coyote? Oh, page forty. I have another one too. So 
this the coyote what as far as i guess here's 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 the question after all that preamble i had i wondered about the protagonist in the story like i wondered about who is actually kind of leading the story mm. you have monroe and you have the coyote yeah. when you were when you were formulating this when you're sort of you know in your process were you ever were, were you were you measured in sort of making sure that if if you know tit for tat one got to do something one got to comment one would do something another got to comment like how aware of you were in designing that balance because it was it was good it kept me hooked right up to into the end wondering when's coyote going to show up in the story again right and what will spark coyote's response to things yeah so what was it like playing with that balance see it's hard to talk about this if no one's read the book right <laughs> i don't want to i don't want to drop too much in there but suffice it to say you have you have two different characters that are kind of leading the story in some ways. Yeah. Um, and co- co- how, how aware of you of that balance? Yeah, it was, it, it was, I wouldn't say it was a tricky balance. It, I think it was more about um, ensuring that it sounded real and that it came across as authentic. And, and for folks who maybe haven't, haven't had a look at the book, the coyote is essentially Munro himself. So he is, He's a young person, a 16-year-old Canadian who has uh, suffered a terrible trauma uh, with the death of his younger sister uh, who um, passed away at school and he has really struggled with her passing over something in the vicinity of 10 to 12 months and his folks who are very caring and and loving parents have struggled with him to try and bring back the Munro that they, they know and and they love. And they end up sort of as a last resort saying, well, what about, because Munro wants to leave school. He wants to get out of school because school just, he associates everything that that was terrible that happened with his sister's passing with school and he's looking to to leave to to basically get out of that scene and his folks obviously want him to finish school so they hit upon this last resort of a student exchange and Monroe agrees to it agrees to go on an exchange to Australia because his sister Evie uh, who had down syndrome had a wonderful Australian teacher and she, one of her goals prior to her passing was she wanted to visit Australia. She wanted to go there. And Monroe feels like maybe he can find himself again in Australia because of the meaning that's attached to that. And I should say the manifestation of this trauma, this, this post-traumatic stress situation that he's dealing with, there's a number of things that are going on, both physical and psychological, but, but the main manifestation of that is this voice that is in his head that is very negative. Actually, not always negative. Sometimes it can be cajoling or sarcastic or any of these sorts of things. And the therapist that he's been seeing has has tagged this voice as the coyote. And that speaks to the place, and I should say it's never explicitly stated, but his therapist is is First Nations. And the coyote, this label of the coyote is is a good one uh, because 
in First Nations folklore, the coyote is considered a trickster and a prankster and, and a deceiver. And that's really the essence of what this voice is. So it's Munro versus himself, but certainly in in the story, you know, the coyote sort of takes on something of a of a persona itself. And uh, as I said, really represents the internal struggle that Munro is having to try and find himself again after the terrible trauma that he's experienced. So that's sort of where the coyote fits. And in terms of the balance, it was it, it made sense that at certain moments that the coyote would be would be active, would be talking to him, uh, that it would intrude upon him and, and it or at various times it would try and deceive him into thinking something different to what he's hearing in a conversation or, or a uh, and in a dialogue that he's having with himself. So as I was sort of putting it together, it, it felt like there were natural entry points for the coyote to, to intrude, to be intrusive in, in Munro's life. Uh, and then obviously as the story plays out, there's some great significance with why the coyote disappears at a, at a certain time in the story. There's there's, it makes sense as to why that would be the case. So it was it was really fun. It was really interesting. And as I said before, the I I think magic realism is is a part of my DNA. But in this story, you would never call this story a magic realist story. But I do look at the voice of the coyote as being a little nod in in that direction. And and there is a scene towards the end too. Spoiler won't do any spoilers here but there is a scene towards the end that certainly fits very very comfortably within within that sort of realm it it had um the coyote had an the impact on me i guess as as the reader is that um you know i was i i, I think i flowed between wanting the voice to be something and then getting kind of sucked into what the voice was saying. Like I started to see it less intrusive and just kind of a part of the natural flow. And when the coyote, the coyote's words would kind of pop up, I had this image of something sort of like, it was less whispering in Monroe's ear, but actually having one-to-one conversation. It became quite real. And I don't know if that was a measure of me kind of falling in step with Monroe's life you know kind of the activities he was going through and it it became i i started to play with would this be the type of self-talk that i would have given monroe's backstory so i found it it did it, it it did flow in 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 well with the with the way the plot evolved and it was funny at some point i thought to myself you know i haven't heard like where is the coyote mm. Because I, I thought of, you know, some of the situations that Monroe was going through and I got used to a little bit of that self-talk, if that's what the coyote is at that moment, the self-talk po- popping in. And, in, in you know, in, in many of the cases, not many, but there were cases where it was sometimes negative, sometimes just provocative, sometimes just sarcastic. Like there was a lot of... Um, uh, is provocative, intoxicating type of language that like it was coyote was always talking like it knew Monroe. Right. Right. And, and it didn't necessarily, the voice didn't necessarily want Monroe to move forward. 
Yeah. And so all of a sudden I felt sort of like the sense of lightness. I'm like, wow, yeah, I haven't heard from Coyote in a while. Hope he doesn't show up. You know, it was sort of like, you know, waiting for the creaky board, like just, eat. oh, Coyote's back. Yeah. and, and the, um, the voice. Go uh, ahead. You I jump was, in. I was just going to make sense, or just going to mention, I hope it makes sense too as to the dynamic of, of the Coyote's appearance and disappearance at, at various times. I, I certainly aimed for that, again, to – Every author, when they're putting together a fictional story, they want they want the story to be real and to make sense and to be authentic. And that was a big part of it to, if the coyote is around, then there needed to be reasons for that. And if the coyote is not around, there needs to be reasons for that as well. And that was obviously a, a big part of, of Munro's journey is, trying to rid himself of, of the coyote and the circumstances in, in which uh, in which those uh, or the presence of the coyote is either there or not, it, it needed to be something that the reader goes, yep, yep, I can see that. And that's something that uh, pulls me further into the story because I can see it starting to, there's shape around this. There's, there's things that um, keep me drawn. So that's good. Good to hear, Chris. Glad it kept you kept you involved. Yeah, it did. I did feel like that it was, uh, I felt as if in many ways it was the coyote, it was the coyote voice that kept me hooked into, like it was the, um, what do I want to say? Not Maybe the checkpoints, maybe just the, uh, the, Oh, I don't know what it is. Like, I felt like those were the doorways. Those were the gates that I was moving through mm. with each kind of self-check that the coyote was doing. I felt like, okay, there's there's a change here. There's a change. And, and the other interesting thing it did is it actually made me pause for a moment and think about what's changed in Monroe. Right. So it's not just the coyote checking in necessarily randomly. It's like, what is what is what actually happened here? It's like like a pinch and zoom kind of a thing coyote comments what actually just happened that would sort of make coyote comment on it right and i think that's when i started to notice when the coyote wasn't speaking as much i had to pay better attention to what monroe was doing like i had to kind of cue in and not only monroe but the collection of characters around monroe like i had to sort of pay closer attention because there was no more sort of like tap on your shoulder like hey this is sort of an important this is a key turning point they're still happening even though Coyote's not talking right Right. So that was, yeah, that's, I did. I, I engaged that way. The, um, the, the voice. So I play with a little writing myself and I think to myself, one of the most challenging spaces is where I write outside of my own experience, mm. where I sort of try and extend into a space that I haven't actually lived this stuff. And, you know, there's, for me, there's always a space where if I'm only writing about things that I've lived, well, you, you have a nice base of knowledge, but maybe it's a little bit dangerous because you're sort of exposing self. You're sort of bringing, you're proposing or sort of presenting things that the casual onlooker might not notice, but you kind of need to put in that stuff to make, you know, brushing your teeth interesting. Yeah. <laughs> What's the inner dialogue as you're brushing your teeth in the morning? Yeah. That's a really, that's overly simplistic. Um, when you were writing, putting this book together, um, I guess one, I'm curious about, how much of you is actually in there? Um, and if so, was there was was it measured? Were you sort of making sure that 
you know, only certain amounts of you came through so to sort of push to a wider type of story? Or were you sort of aware of the fact that you were writing from, um, from, from a base of lived experience and you wrote this? Or is it on the other extreme of entirely fictional? That's a great question. And, and every author will, will have a different sort of answer to that. My, my sort of standard response is I, some people do ask me about, are you writing faction in, you know, not fiction? Mm. And I haven't heard that before. That's good. And my, the short answer is, is no, but I do draw quite heavily from my own lived experience and my own background. And for Munro, it really started actually with the original conception of, of this, of this work. And again, for folks who may not be familiar with the story, there's, there's a, a place in the story, uh, an assisted living residence, which is a fictional place called Fair Go. And Fair Go was actually present in my previous story, Are You Seeing Me? And the, the idea of, of that fictional residence, assisted living residence in Are You Seeing Me, was that one of the main protagonists in that story was going to end up living there. And I should say he actually ends up making an appearance a number of times uh, in Munro, a character called Perry. And the so in Are You Seeing Me, that assisted living residence was really just very much in the background. This was going to be a place where Perry ended up going uh, on the back of the story that happened uh, in that novel. And coming out of the back end of Are You See Me and, and thinking about a new idea, which ended up becoming Munro versus the Coyote, I thought about that living resonance. And this really relates quite strongly to, to my own experience. Uh, for one thing, I was, I was a special education gym teacher for three years when I first came out of university. So I had that experience to draw from, and it was obviously quite pivotal and, and quite life-changing to to be involved with with that sort of experience and i'm i'll sort of mention on on the call here too that i have uh, a young son or he's not so young anymore he's 17 and he is on the autism spectrum and is positioned what we call as moderate classic autism which is actually smack bang in the middle of the spectrum generally people when they think about autism, they'll think about the uh, so-called high-functioning end of the spectrum, which is folks who may be very, very verbal, may have savant-like skills. Um, and then at the other end of the spectrum, you may have folks who are who may be non-verbal, who may have uh, significant intellectual disability, this sort of thing. My son's actually right in the middle. And... In coming out of the, the previous book, in our own lives, in, in the life of our little family, we're starting to think about life after school for our son. And it's quite likely that he will not live independently, he will not work independently, but there will be opportunities that, uh, that he will have and, and I'm sure that he will enjoy and so with this stuff a little more top of mind as as my son was moving towards the end of his high school experience, it got me thinking about 
this resonance about fair go. And I thought, well, if my boy was to go to fair go, what would I want that place to be? Uh, how would it operate? Who would be there? And most importantly, what would it reflect? What what would I want this place to be in terms of connection and care and and about what it says regarding disability in society? And all of these all of these different things were sort of rattling around in my in my head space. So that was really a, a bit of a jumping off point for this story. There are a number of other ideas as well, and, and actually I'll, I'll mention another one, which came from my experience as a special ed teacher. There was a young student that I taught, and this is back in the back in the nineties, so a long long time ago. And there was a young student with Down syndrome who had a hole in the heart, and lovely kid, and uh, this was many moons ago, so I, I don't know where he's at now, and obviously this was back in Australia as well. But the thing I remember, apart from him being a lovely kid and, and uh, a real treat to have in the class, it was the thing I remember about him too was physically he always had blue lips because of he had some circulatory issues with, with, his, heart, um, with his heart problem. And this was something I th- that I grabbed from my experience and gave to the character of Evie in, in Monroe, that this was something that would be associated with her. So, yeah, there was a number of things along the way, but in the original conception of the story that really when you start to pull these things and then put them together, suddenly you have a novel, uh, you have a story. I actually liken it to there's a bird in Australia called the bowerbird, and the bowerbird creates its nest by just grabbing stuff from everywhere, and it could even be junk. It could be, you know, straws or, uh, you know, bits of paper and things like that. And the bowerbird is famous for putting together these nests that are pretty much made of anything and everything. And that's sort of how a novel works for me. You know, I grab all of these bits and a lot of them, well, a number of them can be quite close to home. And when I start building that nest, at some point you actually have a nest in front of you. You have a novel. And uh, as I said, in, in pretty much every case with every work that I do, quite a bit of that nest can, can be things that I've drawn from, from my own experience. But it may not be lived. It may not be firsthand. Uh, quite clearly, I and it was a big reason why I didn't want to tell this story from the first-person perspective of the residents in Fair Go because that's not my story to tell. Um, I chose the first-person narration of a 16-year-old Canadian lad, and that was a perspective that I thought was important not just for the story, but also for what what it says about disability. There's a lot of people who speak for the disabled um, in this day and age. And I wanted the residents to speak for themselves in this story. It was sort of like they could tell me, you know, get out of the way, let us speak for ourselves, let us tell the reader about 
who we're about and what our dreams are and things we want to accomplish. And they're not beholden to the main character either. And that was really important to me as well. One of the tropes that's associated with, with disability in particular in, uh, in literature over the years has been that the person with a disability serves as a device for the journey of somebody else and they're not fully rounded characters or they don't have their own, their own voice. And that was a really important thing for me that the, the residents, that they were the heroes, they were the stars of the book, even though that I wasn't telling the story through their eyes. And they, as I said, they weren't, they weren't a device for anyone else's journey. In the end, Munro's journey is his journey. Uh, you know, his fight with the coyote is his fight with himself. And the residents, even though they're agents as part of that journey, they have agency themselves. They have their own lives and they have their own thoughts and feelings, and uh, they certainly make those known. You know, the the voice that you gave to the res- residents of, of Fergo, I really, I really loved that the way that, you know, in in the amount of time and space that you have to sort of um, explore them in the story, because um, it's running sort of very much parallel to Monroe's story, that the space that you gave them was so dense. And, you know, I'm thinking of a particular scene in there with, with the vote and the actual facilitator, the leader, not the leader, Kelvin, yep. the, the character yep. that's sort of like the... Um, proprietor the person the supervisor the boss of yep. of fergo yep. yet completely democratizing the way that monroe gets to participate um i really i loved how how specific and individualized each one of the characters were and how they welcomed monroe into their family um it it brings me to another question as i was wondering within this story uh, actually, I'll do a quick backstory. So I had mentioned in our on-ramp when we were talking that I've, uh, I think I mentioned that uh, I've shifted into a new job this year, a new portfolio. So my background has been in a lot of small space teaching. So when I first came into teaching, I was hired. My former life, I was a chef. For a while, I was in hospitality industry. And I came in and I started teaching that at the high school level. And I quickly shifted into special education. I did some guidance. And I did some alternative education. And then I was working for two years with students that have been uh, suspended or expelled from their home schools. Mm-hmm. And this school year in September, I shifted to an entirely new school and I'm working in an autism program. I'm working with uh, students to develop independent, some independent living skills. And each one of the students is a different human altogether. Right. And what, what hit me pretty hard is you saying that in you know the the not the easy but the common trope would be that someone one of the characters at Fargo could very well be just the vehicle for exploring the main character's world they they're not necessarily there's not a journey there unto themselves i will say that that is the most single most profound pillar of what i'm trying to accomplish in this new portfolio and at the same time the most valuable trying to see the students as the humans as they are in front of me and allowing them 
to express what it is because basically I'm, I'm primarily bringing culinary skills to this program. I'm the third teacher into the program. Right. Um, and building programming from my origin story, which would have been in the kitchen, very much structured learning, recipe driven, money driven, you know, it was, is a business. I was running a business for someone else for a long time. Yeah. And that's that very much my previous, <laughs> my previous experience in working in culinary was the the individuals working there were the vehicle for the business. So I've slowly had to let go of that perspective in working with teens because they're not employees. Right? right. They're not they're not there to, to make they're not there to make education better. They're not. Yeah. It's the other way around. And it's taken me a while to sort of develop my sensitivity to that and then add the skill sets into it. And I find this year it's coming to a full circle. So each one of these individuals that I'm working with and, you know, we're cooking together and learning together and they're sharing their stories and the way that they share their stories, like all this stuff that's sort of growing in our classroom, singularly, I have to remind myself that they are not there to make me or education better. And I love how that, that is a, that is a, a theme. That's a, that's a, a, a big neon announcement that pushes out of your book. And I think you did it very well. Thank you for that, Chris. That's that's great to hear, and it really, yeah, it it really was a goal of mine with this story was to bring a different light to to intellectual disability in particular. Um, the stats on the representation of disability and neurodiversity in literature. Uh, young adult and otherwise is is poor, and there's obviously many marginalised groups deserving of as much representation as possible. The reality of that is, though, that when we talk about diversity and representation and appropriation and things like that, there does tend to be something of a hierarchy involved with that. Uh, it tends to start with race and sexual orientation. Uh, it can venture into religion, socioeconomic uh, status, um, gender identity. And again, it's really important that those voices are heard and those stories are told by the folks who, who live that experience firsthand. The challenge in the area of disability and neurodiversity is is for people like my son, who quite literally has no voice, uh, doesn't have a metaphorical voice in literature, and at, at times has no literal voice in society uh, or in his home or in his life. And the balancing act that I, I mentioned before that I wanted to have with Munro and the residents was the residents in Fairgo, certainly have more agency in their lives than, than my son. But again, to balance that with this idea of that they would not be a device for others, another trope that is heavily involved with disability or has been to this point is something we call inspiration porn, where, again, the person with a disability or the neurodiverse person is a source of inspiration for a main character's journey changes their life for the better, a la a Rain Man type of situation or something like that. Your students are far too young to know the film of Rain Man, but 
if they do happen to catch it. I know it. I know. I remember the movie. Yeah. And again, not that Rain Man is a terrible story. It's not, but that that idea of again what we call inspiration porn is something that has been overdone, and it it limits the agency that a character with disability has uh, in in the narrative. So yeah, it was it was really important, and it, and you talked about the balancing act that. Um, that I looked to bring between Munro and, and the Coyote, I think there was more of a balancing act really involved with, with the residents. As I said, I wanted them to have voice, but I didn't want to speak for them. I wanted them to have their own journeys and their own lives, but still be influential in, in Munro's journey. And I wanted them to save the day. I wanted them to, to be heroes in the story. And again, without giving away any spoilers, uh, these residents end up occupying a space in the story at the end, which I don't think is, I certainly haven't read work before, that positions people with intellectual disability in that in this particular way, in how a story is resolved. So there was a lot <clears throat> that I wanted to do, and it all sounds very detached and, and technical and this sort of stuff. It was all quite organic too. I, first and foremost, every author wants to tell a good story. And that is, that's always first and foremost. The messages and the themes that surround it always must be secondary to telling a good story. But I was certainly aware that I was coming from a place that there were things that, that I wanted to say uh, and things that I wanted the, the neurodiverse community and the disability community to recognise and to feel like that balance had been had been achieved in the work. Hmm. Did you fall in, into any holes in writing this? I mean, I could say a hole, a wall, where the book or the story or a particular character fought back, just like almost resistant to making it to the page. Um, I think the the coyote was was very interesting because this idea of of the deceiver and the trickster, I I wanted there to be again no spoilers involved here, but I wanted the coyote to to play ultimate deceiver and, and without giving too much away, I'll say that this book when it was published in Australia and New Zealand, uh, its title was Exchange of Heart. And I love that title. I love Munro versus the Coyote too. I think it's a fantastic title. I do like Exchange of Heart very much as well. And that speaks to a certain element in the story that uh, really the Coyote, I wanted to be very influential. And people would people's assumption as they're reading through it is that the Coyote is all in his head. You know, it's all in Munro's head. And all the while, you you end up discovering that the coyote was actually in his heart as well. The coyote was actually ultimately deceiving Munro in a way that this was not just a psychological manifestation, but it was actually a physical manifestation as well. And that's something that does not become very clear, you know, until you reach a certain point in the story. So, um that was there was a lot of shaping and a lot of a lot of thinking that I did uh, around that particular piece, 
In terms of other characters who yeah, it was interesting, Munro's parents were initially I didn't have them being as supportive as they have ultimately ended up on the page. I I almost f- wanted there to be some conflict occurring between particularly the father and uh, his father and, and Munro. But as I got into the story, that one of these things, again, of, of returning to this idea of wanting to make sense and wanting it to, to be real, I figured that my initial thought for that conflict would be that these two characters who had both suffered terrible traumas with the loss of a daughter and a sister just were... were was swimming around in that without without a lot of clue as to how to reconnect between the two of them. And although I think that can be very relevant and some of the students listening to this might might have lived that experience, where on the back of trauma you have trouble connecting with a parent or with somebody else who is close close to that situation. I think what made more sense coming out of the back of that was the way in which I'd constructed these characters. It would actually make more sense that they were they were trying to do the best thing for each other rather than having difficulty connecting because they couldn't see past their own trauma. They understood each other's trauma well but didn't really know how to move forward. So there was some reshaping with that that I think was really important towards the end, and I thought it made more sense that you would have uh, parents who were trying to do the best thing with a terrible, terrible uh, situation that occurred. They'd set up a foundation supporting uh, Down syndrome research and this sort of thing, but it was really, and, and then wanting their son to be a part of that, to potentially not, you know, not only contribute to a greater good, but to possibly help him with, with his own, catharsis or his journey but that that that's where the barrier was that they were trying their best to do the right thing and it just wasn't the right thing and something that ends up being a last resort in fact potentially could be that that right thing so there was some resistance with the characters there of the parents too there was there was some things that um as i thought things through and and the story started to come together that it was almost a 180 uh, from certainly Munro's dad as to what he looked like in the original drafts to, to how he turned out on the page. Can I ask you one more sort of like a free floating question that I want to just do a couple kind of nuts and bolts questions with you, if I could about writing. Yeah. Um, do you, do you think about Munro? I think I'm thinking about the ending of the story. And again, I caution, I had to write, I wrote this down, so I would say it quite specifically, but the way the book is left, there's a, um, it, it, it would make me think about him. I, I think for me, when I think about reading, I think about it also in, in video gaming as well. Some of the video games I enjoy, right. um, and move movies, if they really, really get in, like if they really get in my head, yeah. um, I, I think about it, like, it's like the, uh, like, what are they doing? What are those characters doing now? And the books that I'm involved with currently, when I close it up, it's it's like a telephone call. I, I think to myself, that character, that 
that uh, person is living a life that because I've closed the book or I've turned off the phone, I no longer have access to. I have access to them just in this moment in the one-one connection, whether the words are on the page in front of me or I've got it in my ears, I'm talking to them. And I, I sort of say, you know, that's the humanity. That's the, that's the uh, organic nature of, for me, in relating to other people. And then, and I kind of use the same thing to relate to books. Mm. So even when I close the book, I have a measure of where the plot is going. I still have this sort of like, like, I wonder what that character is doing. Insert character's name. Yeah. Yeah. At the end of the book, at the end of the book, it's left open in a lot of ways. Um, And I just wonder as the author, do you, do you think about Monroe? Does he, does he come to mind as, as something more than just, you know, the character on the page or the next steps? I mean, I mean, you're the author, so you get (laughs) great thing is you get to decide, you know, where where Monroe goes next and any of the characters but there were there's like like I think about Shaw like yeah right I, I think about the character in there like what's going on with that dude you know like I think about the relationship that that relationship at Fairgo mm. between um the two characters and I don't know that could be I won't give that away but there's a relationship there and I think about those two together and what their next step in the relationship will look like right. Yeah. So I start with asking about Monroe, but let's say any of the characters, do do they come to mind as in, you know, something as as sort of simple as I wonder what they're doing right now or as the, you know what, I think this is what I'm going to have them do next. How do you, how do you perceive them now that the book is finished? I think that's a it's a, such a lovely question and I think it is it is a great question for for authors. I think it's an even better question for readers. I, I think for readers, mm-hmm. when a story really connects, and authors do have a different connection to their stories because we have so much of of what an author does is trying is is trying to get things right on the page. You know, there's so much craft and technique that our headspace is is involved with. People have asked me about sad scenes or, or terrible scenes that are not terrible scenes as in awful writing, but, um, you know, scenes with great emotional, uh, gravity or gravitas. And people have said, how did you, how did you write that? Like, were you in tears as you wrote that and this and that? And the answer is invariably no, because I was, I'm so busy trying to get the right word and the right sentence and to have that sing on the page and that's what then the reader hopefully connects with and they're the ones who who are the recipients of of that emotional engineering i i should say it's it's very rare i never read my stuff cover to cover once it's come out or anything like that i will from time to time read little bits sort of here and there. I can't remember the last time I read anything from from Munro. And again, it's largely because the, the process is, by the time you get to the end of the editing process, well, the end of drafting, the end of redrafting, the end of editing, and then your mind moves to, okay, what's what's the next story? What is the next thing that I'm that I'm interested in? I don't return to the story very often except in opportunities like this chris where people people are talking about their experience 
of the story to me. And that actually brings it back to life for me. I will say that when I'm when I'm back in that headspace of story, these characters will come to mind at various times. And I mentioned before about a character from my the novel previous to Munro, a character called Perry Richter, who makes three appearances in Munro versus the Coyote. And because of the link of this story with Fair Go to, to that previous novel, it made sense that Perry would would necessarily make an, uh, an appearance or two uh, as as part of this story. And that was a, a lovely space to return to. I really enjoyed immensely writing that character in, in Are You Seeing Me? As I mentioned before, a lot of personal uh, elements that I brought to that story through that character. And to have him revisit me, in Munro versus the Coyote was was quite special. It was terrific. And the response of readers to that when they didn't know Perry was making an appearance in, in Munro and when they came to it, people were people tweeted me lovely responses and actually my, my copy editor had a lovely response to it where she was she was so thrilled that uh, that Perry had made a re a reappearance and she didn't know that was coming. So I do think about these characters in terms of if there is a natural follow-on, what might be happening with them. Some people have actually asked me whether I would write a sequel to to Munro versus the Coyote. Some people have asked me if I would write Shah's story, uh, not only where you know what happens to him following this particular piece, but also delving into his background. I don't think that's my story to tell. That is, that's the story of, of a refugee student, and it is based very loosely on my superficial experience of I spent almost a decade in an incredible school as a gym teacher uh, for migrant refugee students in Australia, and that was life-changing stuff and has really informed my, my fictional uh, output in a lot of different ways, but as I mentioned before, it I don't feel that's that's my story to tell. I don't think Shah's story is is mine to tell. One other character that people felt they would like to see more of is Florence, and to get into her background, there's certainly some allusion to. Uh, a traumatizing event in her life which resulted in her her being at Fairgo and shaping the character that that she appears to be in in that story i would probably be probably be more amenable to exploring her story but uh i i haven't really entertained that with with any sort of uh concrete steps forward and then when it comes to Munro himself I, I do I have thought a little bit about what his future might have been following the final page of the novel and it probably says a lot about me I'm an optimist at heart I do see I've seen good things ahead for him I've seen good things ahead for 
pretty much all of the residents. And so, yeah, it's it's lovely to entertain from time to time. I I don't tend to do it much unless I'm into a new story and it makes sense that if I might be revisiting some time or place or a character that, that may have appeared before. And as I mentioned, that was certainly the case with Perry and Are You Seeing Me, that that uh, he he could be front and centre for a little while in, in this particular tale. Maybe there's another story coming down down the line here where Munro and, and perhaps a Canadian version of, of Fair Go uh, would would make an appearance too. So, But I love that for the readers. I love that readers can see lives continuing on and when it's made that sort of level of a connection that's that's pretty special for an author that somebody feels feels that that much of an attachment that they uh, they see the future yeah i think it's like you said it's the optimism it's hopeful and it's and it um apart from let's say the fact that if someone is still thinking of your characters they they're you know they're they're willing to consume more. They want it. They want more of the story, which I can see how that, like I said, you, you get to be the author. You're, you're, these stories come to you and you share them. And if, if people are digging it, there's, there is a certain amount of pride. Like you should feel good about someone wondering about your characters. And, and I can see how, um, you know, I, when I think about any of the characters here, um, I get, I get the, I, I do very similar things actually, let's say with this podcast and other pieces that I've written or created. I don't, I don't go back and review and kind of, how do you, how do I say this? I'm aware of, no, that doesn't work either. It's challenging to put into words. I guess there's stuff. I, I had someone else in a podcast, another teacher, we were talking about reflective practice. Right. Um, and you know, there's a, there's an accepted trope in teaching that reflective practice is good for you. Right. And it's, you know, I kind of, I wrestle with that because there's reflective practice and then active engagement in your reflective practice. So it's sort of like, how much do you go back and review your pieces that you've created and, and then kind of just sit there, like is, is sitting there and going back and being nostalgic enough or so it, going back and reviewing it also lead into active practice. So if the point is to go back and, you know, you decide to go back into your notes and the, you know, your planning and, you know, what you did with Monroe versus the coyote, does just the fact of doing that mean that you should take it someplace? Right. Or is it enough that you can be nostalgic in your head and in these moments, like you're saying, someone brings up the character and you're like, oh, yeah, like you have a common, you can almost share in the common like experience of I wonder what Monroe is doing. Right. Because you haven't, it's that example of when someone, when we get off this podcast right now, you're going to go about your life. I'm going to go about my life. And there will be a moment like, hey, I wonder what the rest of his day looks like. You know, like I'm going to have that sort of moment. And so in leaving some of the relationship, it makes in some ways the relationship more real. And if the person I was talking to, the person I was talking to about the reflective uh, teacher's name is Jen Apgar. She's, she's highly reflective, right. very philosophical. And she's great at asking questions. And when she, she flipped the, I ended up having to do two podcasts with her because the stuff that I was curious about, the stuff that she was doing ended up, she kind of flipped the script and we talked about reflective practice and 
how doing podcasting, how, how am I expressing my own reflective practice by having these conversations? Right. And I don't go back and I, I don't re-listen. Like I, I've never re-listened to, I've never re-listened to a single whole episode. Mm. But when I go back through the playlist and I look at the individuals I've talked to, I feel like I go right back. Like the gravity is so heavy. I get drawn right back to the memory right. of the conversation. And it's almost like, I don't know, for me, that's almost like more important than the words that were said in the actual conversation. Yeah, I think it's mind games. I, I think yeah, it is a bit, uh, but I know exactly where you're coming from. I think that's that's certainly how I operate as an author. You know, with you mentioning things from from Munro, it takes me back there. It takes me back to the experience of writing it and what I wanted to say. And the and at times it was difficult to try and make. You know, you want the work to transport people. That's ultimately what fiction does and nothing else does it like fiction like fiction on the page of a, of a novel and you're constantly trying to create that experience of, of transportation and it's and it's all consuming and overwhelming but when you've stepped away from that for a while and then suddenly somebody's talking to you about just the story and the characters and the experience and the emotion that's when it that's when the craft disappears you know you you you're not thinking about geez i wish i'd have used a different word or a different sentence or things like that it's it's more about engaging with what brought you to the idea of this story in the first place and and doing that through the experience of somebody else it's it's a pretty cool space to be for sure tell me tell me a little bit about i i'm just i kind of glanced over at the book again and i'm looking at the collage nature of of the cover and for those of you that pick up the book it's a part of the current white pine selection is white pine actually i'll go in this route first is white pine a um i actually don't even know darren what do you know about white pine how did you get connected with the white pine the white pine i don't even know what to call it like is it an organization is it a no it's a i, I don't know if I, it's an award it's funny i don't even know if i should it's an award okay yeah. so Tell, tell me a little bit about how you got connected with this, or how how it was made known to you, or yeah, it's it's a big what do you know? It's a big deal. Um, the Ontario Library Association conduct uh, a fantastic program called uh, the Forest of Reading, uh, mm-hmm. and they acknowledge uh, the best works of uh, kids literature and young adult literature for that particular year through through these awards each of them named after a different uh, different tree there's the blue spruce i know and, of the maple leaf yeah I think yeah the red red maple and uh and the young adult um piece is is called the white pine and it's one of those uh signature sort of awards where if if you're lucky enough to be included and i i, I can't say I'm speaking for every author here, but this is certainly my experience. The white pine was something that I'd been, um, you know, hoping that that I might gain that recognition because I know that it's quite special, and it's sort of like a, a little bit of a, a, a coming of age for for an author here. 
And of course, my experience is, is quite different, uh, having come from Australia, been over here for a decade or so. I only had uh, my previous work, Are You Seeing Me, published here. I had some other works published back in Australia. But this was my second book in North America, Munro. And I mentioned before that my novel, Are You Seeing Me, did some tremendous things in Australia and New Zealand and other parts of the world. And, and it was shortlisted in the Governor General's Literary Awards here in, in Canada and in the BC Book Prizes. So it, it just did tremendous things. 2015 was, was quite, quite a, a surreal year for me. And Monroe, to some degree, you know, I'm writing that a little bit in the shadow of, of that book. And during the year that we've, we've just concluded, um, the, this little novel, Monroe, managed to do a couple of things that Are You Seeing Me did not. And that actually felt pretty special. And The White Pine is one of those. And so it's, it's a tremendous feeling of um, that somebody likes your stuff, which is great. Um, one of the things that I love the most about any sort of recognition is that you're part of a community of recognition. There are other books that are, that are shortlisted for that. And invariably you get to connect with those people, whether it's online or face to face or this sort of stuff. And I love that part of it, that you feel like if your book is lucky enough and there is a, I should say, there is a tremendous amount of luck involved with these things you could have you know, 10 other books that would make a tremendous white pine list and it wouldn't include any of the ones that are currently on there. But if you are lucky enough to have your book be picked out of the pile, you, you're you then part of a community, you know, part of that white pine community for, for 2019. And I particularly love that part of it because writing surprise surprise is is quite a solitary pursuit and there's not always a ton of opportunity to to connect with others um you you want to to connect with readers as much as possible as i said i love to connect with the writers as well and and to to build that sense of of uh, a sort of a collegiate type of type of feeling uh, and that's what the white pine sort of affords me it's already afforded me wonderful opportunities including this one today um, that I wouldn't have had otherwise so it's it's an absolute thrill to be to be a part of that and looking forward to to more things upcoming through the year where I started that question and it, I got distracted by two things. Again, looking at the cover of the novel and then the spine is facing me. It's just beyond my mic. So I can see the sticker on the side. I'm going to come back to the cover and what the tiling of the cover, you you actually dovetailed into it nicely. You talked about the the sort of like the solo venture that writing can be. And one of the, you know, if part of, part of this, besides the fact I was jazzed to talk to you, talk to an author talk about this book is also that I'm going to be facilitating, you know, this book club book talk on, um, on, a, on a few selections from the white pine books. And one of the questions that it may or may not come up, but somehow maybe this is a, a teacher thing. This is the teacher part coming out. You mentioned the sort of like a little bit of the, the solo mission that writing can be. And it makes me wonder about 
what that workflow can look like. And I realize every author, every artist, their creative process and cycle is different. But could you could you shape up a little bit what your sort of writing process looks like? And the reason that the cover brings to me, like I said, it's that collage element of the, the picture of the coyote. There's space between each of the images and there's several images on here. But as a whole, it comes together and you get this, this uh, sort of profile picture of a coyote head. So what are the, the elements or the pieces of your, your writing day or writing week or writing flow that, you know, are, end up in a novel? How do you, how do you, how do you do it? And I know that's huge. I know that's huge. Um, but what are the, some of the key components, your go-to tools in your writing process? Yeah, I, you're right in saying like every author is, is certainly different with, with how they end up getting words down on the page. I'm not a big, people talk about there's plotters and there's pantsers in in the industry so the the plotters are the ones who organize everything to the to the nth degree and before they start writing they'll have everything mapped out to to its finest point the pantsers who are you know the fly by the seat of their pants tend to be the ones who just sort of start and see where it takes them i tend to lean more towards the pantsers um i will have a sense of, of a story, an idea I mentioned before, the analogy of, of the bowerbird. And once I've, I've built a bit of a, a nest, then it's away we go and, and let's see, see how things go. Munro was, was really interesting in, in that respect. I, the first scene I wrote, interestingly, Chris, you were talking about this scene before, the, the interview scene where Munro has arrived mm. in Australia and is interviewing for a volunteer role uh, at the residence. That was the first scene I wrote because I had this picture in my head of all the things I'd mentioned before about what did I want this place to be and I felt that was summed up in that scene. So it's this idea of in a, in a regular place you're getting Kelvin or the manager or people in positions of authority who will make the decision on behalf of the residents to say who will work with them. And I thought, well, no, how about, how about the residents have a say? And it's, it's not that they're a part of the decision-making process and there is some structure put around that that Kelvin's put together, but they have agency. They have a voice. They, they get to ask what they want to ask. And, and have a say in the decision that's made for who will be who will be working with them and for them. And that was that was the first scene that actually came to me, and the first one that I wrote. I, I don't always sort of start in the middle, and that story actually. Well, I should say that scene was originally going to be the 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 start, the ab, the absolute start of the story, and it didn't it didn't work out that way. But oftentimes I'll, I'll start at the beginning. I'll have a sense of the journey ahead. More often than not, I'll have a sense of where it's going to finish. And Monroe actually stands out as being a story that I didn't know where it was going to finish. Or I had, I had a very small clue, but less clue than I've had with, with other stories in the past. Um, and so I'll have a, a thread that I'll look to follow. But there's a lot of organic moments along the way where it's like, okay, now I've 
constructed this character this way and now they're in this situation, what happens? What What is the next piece? And I love those moments where, and invariably for me, they happen in the shower. <laughs> like if I get if I get writer's block or something like that, then it's funny how having a shower, something about the hot water sort of clears up the, the fuzzy tennis ball-sized brain that I have, and I find some solutions to, to go forward. And again, writers will tell you about different things where, you know, that they used to get out of their headspace, could be going for a walk or heading to the gym. And actually, the gym's pretty good for me as well. But the plotters won't usually run into that sort of situation because they've worked it out all prior to prior to hitting the page. So I tend to be a pantser. Uh, I don't have much of an outline, but I will have an idea of where to go. And sometimes it's actually writing to a target, writing to this end scene. And that's what's happening with my, my current story, is I know exactly where this story is going to finish. And now the challenge for me is to write to that point, to get my characters from where they are right now to that, to that uh, final, final, those final scenes. So, but the other thing is too, every story is different. Every story is its own challenge. Um, you would think that after you've written a few of these that you'd sort of have it down pat and that it would get easier. It doesn't get easier. It never gets easier. There are things, you may have more tricks and more clubs in the bag and that sort of stuff, but you don't know anything. <laughs> you, you're continuing to sort of start again. You always start with a blank page and it's like, or everything I've learned before doesn't make one ounce of difference here. It's it's we're starting again. That that last <laughs> that last statement is it's fascinating to me. Here's so this this podcast, you know, it's I've I've never had a I think a really crystallized destination with it. Um again when I was talking with uh Jen Apgar, my my colleague, my friend the, the question about, you know, what is this podcast to you, Clough, really <laughs> hadn't really occurred to me to sort of anchor it that way. I sort of had my sense of um, like deep space exploration and let's just see what kind of pops up. Right. And if, if, if it catches me, I'm going to, I, I actually, I'll go to a different route. I assume that what caught my attention, I was actually interested in. So, and with that being a fact, if it caught my attention, go deeper. So my whole kind of researchy basically amounted to my, um, a lot of my social media connections and the blogosphere and stuff that sort of would come into schools as, as activities and projects and emails and all this kind of like a whole lot of noise. And then something kind of goes bing and you kind of pay attention to you're like, that's the thing that I think I want to pay attention to right now. And so I would, but I really like this this idea that you're shifting gears with with the i don't know whatever it could be the 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 angle of the plot the character that gets in your head maybe it's a piece of found text like the thing that kind of starts to create the new rule book yeah and here here's here's the question that comes out of this is i'm going to take you back to you know, you, you, you jumped over this really, really quickly, but I think some of my, I have teacher friends that are existing a little bit in the space where they're, they have kind of side hustles. And you said that you were writing the whole time that you were, you know, a lot of the time when you were in education 
And um, at some point, you know, something queued up and you thought to yourself, it'd be a good, it'd be good to kind of shift into writing. Mm. It, it, you know, to kind of, like, and, and I'm just wondering if, if you still are in touch with that, because that's a, that's a, that's a kind of a um, tectonic shift. Like there's, there's a lot of energy in that moment, but I, I've always wondered about what happens just on the other side of that decision. Because um, for myself, if I were to decide to pursue podcasting as a professional endeavor, there's a lot that um, there's a lot I would gain, no doubt. But there's a lot that you're walking away from too, right? So as you were kind of mentioning, um, this is a new rite of passage that you didn't even expect. <laughs> could be awesome, could be challenging. But I'm curious if I could take you just back to that moment of deciding to leaving leaving education in. A bit, sort of like in a, a technical fashion, because I would say, funny enough, you're still in education. Absolutely, Dude, you're still an educ- you're still an educator in a in a parallel universe yep. kind of way. So, can you go back and what was it like? That's a bad. That's a bad question. No, I, I can. Can you? No, I just mean in the. It's not. I don't want to necessarily take you back there, but it's really kind of like formalize. Like after you made the decision to sort of say, I'm leaving teaching. I like to put the now what? Yeah. So what was the next thing that kind of, what did you notice about yourself when you finally said, yeah, I'm, I'm going to leave teaching. I'm going to pursue this. I'm going to go whole hog at it. It's, can you go back there? Yeah, I can. It, it's it's a brilliant question. And funnily enough, I have quite a definitive answer for it. I And I tell this story to, I do, I've done tons of school visits over the years as an author since stepping away from teaching. And I, and I must say, there's a lot of authors who, uh, do a tremendous job with schools and with students, but they it's not the favorite part of their day. I'll say that that they they're not necessarily they might be introverted and they they sort of do it because it's important and they do like talking about stories and and connecting with readers. But the idea of standing in front of three hundred students in an auditorium and putting on a show may not be their usual cup of tea. Or their preferred cup of tea, um, but for me, um, that's something I, I I really love that part of it because it does take me back to to my teaching days. It's it's obviously very different, but the chance to connect with students and to sort of pretend to be a teacher again is actually really really cool for me. The moment where I mentioned about where I figured out that writing is what I do, I, I tell this story to young people in uh, in school sessions where invariably people ask young people, what do you want to do when you finish school? And I think that's the wrong question to ask young people. And the follow-up might be, well, I don't know. I'm 16. I would. I don't have a clue. Give me some time, for God's sake. All this sort of stuff, and rightfully so. The follow-up question might be, well, what is it that you like to do? And sometimes there might not even be a good answer to that question either. And I think I encourage the students to ask themselves, and also for educators to ask their students. Don't ask what do you want to do. Don't ask what do you like to do. Ask what is it that you do. And it's this idea of when somebody has their own time, their own space, and they're inside their own head, 
what is it that they gravitate towards? And it may seem innocuous or it may seem not very productive, but I can guarantee there's something in that. It's this classic idea of, you know, what a young person gravitates towards may be seen through the lens of an adult or an educator, and it may not be seen as being valuable. But if you dig a little deeper, you'll see that there's something in that. And maybe there's some actual steps forward in terms of career or or something more material and, and uh, I guess, you know, something you can grasp. But it speaks to the deeper person themselves. I had that experience sort of out of the blue when I was 23 and I was, I was playing basketball with some uh, high school friends of mine at my old school. And throughout my youth, I'd been a pretty good athlete and I'd sort of had this amorphous dream that I would become an athlete and that I would be discovered. Somebody would discover me and I, had, I didn't have a clue what it what the sport would be. I was good at a number of different sports, maybe athletics or cricket or who knows. And maybe it's something I hadn't even tried yet. Maybe I was a natural at something and I hadn't even done it yet, but I'd be discovered. One day a coach would see me and say, Darren, you're incredible. Like, I can't believe that you haven't been discovered to this point. Let's make it happen. And I was playing basketball with some friends of mine. I was 23. So certainly not beyond my athletic prime, but I was standing at the free throw line with the ball in my hand and my friends will actually tell you that they heard this. I said this out loud, that I was about to shoot the ball and I stopped and I said out loud, I am never going to be an athlete. And I had no idea where that came from and I didn't really understand its implications. So I went home. And somehow I arrived back at this idea of, well, what is it that you do? And clearly sport and playing sport was something that I enjoyed, that I loved, I was good at it, but it wasn't what I did. When I had no other obligations, when I had my own time and my own space and I was in my own head, I didn't gravitate towards playing sport. What I gravitated towards was the page. I would write stuff. I would write stuff down for no reason. I wasn't getting published back then. I didn't have agents. I didn't have any career. I didn't have any expectation of anything. I just had something in my head that I wanted to put down on the page and to see it there in front of me and hopefully in a way that actually made sense to the idea that had been in my in my scone. So I figured out, well, this, this is what I do, like writing. This is what I do. And as I mentioned in passing earlier in the podcast, the the natural next question for me is, okay, well, if I've worked out that this is what I do, then how can I do this more often? How can I get the opportunity to do this more often? And part of that was a pragmatic response because I know that a, a career in the creative arts is a very difficult journey you know not everyone's Stephen King and JK Rowling and you know that level of success quite obviously and uh, you know these days I still have a full-time job that I do and I have as I mentioned a beautiful wife and and uh, twins who are 17 
And me as the primary source of income for our family, I, I'm not going to throw that away in, in pursuit of what I do. But that doesn't stop me from doing what I do. And as I said, that question of how can I do it more often, it's changed over the years. There have been times when, I'm, when I've been able to do it a lot. There have been times when I haven't been able to do it much at all, and that's fine because, you know, first couple of years of the twins was just bananas. It was crazy. It was fantastic. Didn't afford a lot of spare time to, to put some words down on the page. Back to your question about, you know, how it related to then to teaching. So once my second novel was a novel called Most Valuable Potential, and it was actually based on the school the setting for that novel was the school where I worked, this amazing migrant refugee school in, in Brisbane, Australia. And I had some success with that novel that allowed me to step away from teaching. And I didn't really want to go back to it. And this is sort of the irony of, of that decision is I always consider myself a teacher. I, I, I think I will always be a, a teacher. But a couple of things. One, I felt like I had experienced the very best that teaching could offer and really by accident. You know, I'd been a special ed gym teacher for three years and then taught in this amazing, life-changing place for almost a decade. And going to a mainstream school, I, I know there, there would have been tremendous experiences there and tremendous connections with students and it would have been different. But I sort of felt like I think, I've, I, think I might have experienced the very best of what teaching can be. And the other reason sort of driving at, at a decision to step away was that I had writing was what I do. That was the other thing. You know, if I talk about it in terms of teaching was my professional wife and writing was my professional mistress and the mistress was pretty enticing. And I felt like you can't stay in the marriage with the professional wife if, you, if your heart is elsewhere. And because that's the that's the regard I have for teaching. You know, I've seen teachers who are the absolute, and I suspect you might be one of them, Chris. I've seen teachers who are who should be earning hundreds of thousands of dollars because of the influence they have on on the next generation, and they are brilliant at every aspect of what they need to be brilliant at. They're brilliant in front of the class. They're brilliant behind the scenes. They're build. They're brilliant at collegiate relationships with other teachers they're brilliant at big picture they're brilliant at the nitty-gritty I've seen those teachers and they should be earning 500 grand a year and they wouldn't you know and they're not doing it for that they if they were getting paid that it wouldn't matter because they do it because they have the heart and they have the passion for it I had a lot of heart and passion for teaching and still do but it was sort of divided because Again, writing is what I do, and I think it's what I do best. I think it's actually, you know, I'd learned a lot as a teacher, and I think I was a pretty good teacher by the time I was stepping away, which is sort of ironic, but writing is what I actually did best. And I'll never forget when I decided to step away, and I was I was actually telling some students at uh, Milpera, this school for migrant refugee students, and I was telling these students, I said, you know what, this is actually my last couple of weeks here or whenever it was uh, because I'm, I'm going off to, to do something new. And they said, what? And I said, well, I actually, you know, I write. And they said, we had no idea. You never mentioned this before. What was, what, what's going on there? 
and the implication was that, and I was really pleased about this, was they hadn't figured out that I had something of a divided heart, that I had something else that I really loved, and I sort of, I loved a little bit more than them. And the fact that they hadn't figured it out made me feel feel good because I know that the moment that students did figure out that I wasn't 100% in with passion and heart for them, that's the time to step away. Or, well, you should be stepping away prior to that because those students, particularly those students, deserve the sort of teacher that I was talking about before who has it all, including that 100% heart and passion. And it sort of made me feel good, but it also made me feel like this is the right decision because eventually I was going to get found out as something of not an imposter, that's a little strong, but they would have figured out that, you know what? you're actually, you got something that, that you love more than this game. And me as an idealist and as, you know, having such great passion for the, for the profession and vocation of teaching, I didn't want to be someone who was in the game for 30 years and justifying staying there on the basis of holidays or RSP or things like that. I wanted to be, if you're doing it, you need to be doing it for the right reasons. So it was a really interesting time. Um, I haven't returned to teaching since, but I do get these in, in my current day job. There's actually a training component, and it's, of course, very different from teaching in schools. But I get to use some of the, my favorite things that I learned in my time as a teacher, like cooperative learning technique and, you know, true the true skills involved with creating group work, you know, and, and creating great pedagogy. Um, cooperative learning changed everything for me. Um, the way in which I approached teaching, you know, games like basketball or handball or uh, volleyball or things like that, using cooperative learning technique and having groups actually function the way you want groups to function and not pretend to function as a group, it really changed everything. And I still get to use those things in in my day job. And I use them in school visits, you know, when I go, especially in workshop situations where you, you know, you might have a dozen or 15 kids. Being able to use those techniques, it feels like I'm still connected to, to the profession. So it was... It was a really, really interesting time, um, and as you rightfully put it, Chris, I'm, I still feel like I'm a teacher today, and not just through the page and not just through the books, but through things I'm actually doing in the flesh as well. You, I, I love how you, you, you took away my, not took away, but you, you fleshed out, completely fleshed out the last question where I was going to ask you something about kind of, what do you, what do you what do you know about your own sort of change driver? Like when you know you need to kind of switch stuff up. I mean, I think you, <laughs> you, you isolated it pretty clearly that, uh, that the, the passion pulled you in a direction. I love that sort of split, um, that thing of having this, the split heart sort of having two interests uh, and having your students recognize and feel that, 
you were there like and the bit of the surprise i mean that's a that's sort of one of those moments that many of my colleagues have have sort of wrestled with when they knew they were transitioning to a different department or they were moving from in class teacher to an administrator role so becoming a principal at what point do you do the grand reveal to your students um some of the reasons are entirely practical as in they just don't want to create any confusion of loyalty. But I find time and time again, it comes down to the emotional, yeah. uh, realizing full well that something happens on the other side of that decision. And um, I think that despite the complexity of some of those emotions that pop up on the other side, when you choose to share with your students or your colleagues for that matter, that you're, um, you're, you're shifting, there isn't, there is a, um, damn, I almost want to say there's a grieving time in there where individuals have to get used to another part of you and the students need a lot of support. Colleagues need a lot of support and it takes time. I can remember a, um, a principal, uh, David McAdam. He was a, a mentor. Shout out to David McAdam. He was a mentor of mine and I shifted very quickly. He was a principal at a school and he, asked a question that still rings with me is, you know, when do you know your team is ready for you to leave? Right. So this was in response to me sort of shifting my interests and in, in giving off a committee position saying, I'll train this, this group up, I'll let them, I'll, I'll train them in what I was doing so that they're good to go. But this was after the fact that I had shifted. Right. I didn't give any on-ramp. <laughs> and he said flat out, he goes, I can appreciate your, your desire to change, but um, how do you know your team was ready for you to go? And I had never thought of it from that point of view. And it's, um, it's, it's still something that I, I kind of wrestle with as in how much, how much groundwork do you do in advance of shifting when um, I've sort of experienced that on the other side of shift, there's a whole lot of work to be done as well. I think if you, if you know you're coming from the right place in, in making the change, then I don't, I think then, then the experience and, uh, of the recipient of that, of that news or of that change, they, and I certainly felt this was the case with students. I mean, they, they were really smart and, and they, they knew teachers who could do the business and they knew teachers who couldn't. And you, you know, and you know, every, everybody Who's, who's worked in education knows that you'll have teachers who say, you know, this kid can't do this and they can't do this and they can't do this. And in somebody else's class, they can. And there's a reason for that. And often what's forgotten is that the student is really smart and they know that, you know what, they may not have respect for that teacher because they can't do the business or that's just not put together in a way that makes sense for them. Whereas here it does. And mm -hmm. so I think it's similarly the case where, you know, I felt like in making the decision to walk away that I was being honest and I was being truthful and I wasn't, I wasn't blowing smoke for these guys and they recognized that. And they also knew where I'd been coming from, prior to that, that when I was, they understood that I was all in all the time. And then they said, well, you know what, I guess, I guess we can see that you're all in when you're with us. And the things that they couldn't see were the, th were the only things that were missing. So again, I mentioned about 
the greatest teachers have got it all. Uh, and it's not just being great in front of the class and, and that sort of stuff. It's behind the scenes as well. And that's where the, I think, you know, it's this idea of, I think, with teachers, if you have 100% heart and passion and commitment, but your skill level is maybe not where it needs to be, then that will come because the passion will drive that. It will drive the acquisition of skill and of better better performance in front of the class and better better behavior management and, and better accounting for individual difference and all that sort of thing. But if you have those skills, if, if, being, if in front of the class is your real strength and you are brilliant with that stuff, but you don't put in the behind-the-scenes work, the nitty-gritty stuff, those skills will eventually atrophy. They'll, they'll fall away a little bit. And again, thankfully, I don't think my students had seen that with me yet, but it would have happened. Like it would have happened eventually because of that split heart that I had. So again, in, in leaving them with that news of, you know, here's, here's what I'm doing next, and unfortunately it doesn't invo involve you guys, they could put together the sum of all their experiences with me and connect it with that news and say, well, you know what, actually that, that makes sense. Um, and we will sort of move on without you and, and thank you for what, what you brought. And it's probably the same with you, Chris, you know, with your decision to make change. You strike me as a guy who, who uh, is coming from a really good place and people would recognise that. They would see that and not begrudge you the change on based on their own sort of experiences or, or what they're going to miss. But, um, but they, would, they would see it for what it is and see it for its truth. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. I think that that becomes the that's that's the struggle. <laughs> that's that's the struggle. I I would definitely say that um you know back to what uh what that principal said to me about recognizing it wasn't it wasn't him saying don't change. Right. It was just a matter of him saying keep a really wide view of this because there's going to be individuals that you're 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 going to spend you're going to spend some time managing them and, and caring for them while you transition at the same time that you're caring for your own transition. Right. And it's just, it's, it's an interesting, very um, humanistic way to look at change because there's a whole lot of really singular individual reasons that can motivate us to sort of springboard to that next thing. And if um, you know, for some people, if there's an element of escapism in it, it's easy to sort of like cut and run. So that's right. uh I, I take his words to heart and I appreciate, I appreciate your observation as well. I hope that's something that is a part of what um, is a part of what my colleagues experience of me is and what my students experience of me is. And um, yeah, who knows, who knows what I could shift to next. Maybe a novelist. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't been just, yeah, maybe I haven't <laughs> been distracted fully yet. I haven't, I haven't split up my heart. Um <laughs> The, uh, you know what, dude, I'm going to, I'm going to call it here. If you're cool with that. Absolutely. Are you, are yeah. You good. Yeah. Yeah. We've, we've covered, covered a lot of territory for sure. Um, I do want to, you know, throw it over to you though. The, um, individuals that are reaching out to you that want to connect, that want to continue or just bounce ideas back and forth. Where, where do you like to be found? Uh, the folks can find me uh, on my website at darrengroth.com. Uh, also, 
uh, Facebook, Darren Groth Author, uh, on Twitter, at Darren Groth. And Instagram is actually a shared one with my fantastically talented brother, Simon. We are the Brothers Groth on Instagram. Uh, you can keep an eye out for us there as well. So plenty of platforms and uh, feel free. Drop me a line, say good day. Um, use your worst Australian accent. I've heard the worst ones and yours won't be the worst. So anything you want to ask, uh, it's, it's all good. Thank you for your time. I appreciate you. I really, I really appreciate you. I expect there'll be, this will be a bit of a gift for the students. Um, any of the book talks I've been a part of uh, haven't had necessarily some of the, the, the authors, well, let alone just hearing their voice, right? Hearing the voice apart from the book. So I'll, uh, you know what, I'll reach back out to you because there could be some, I'm going to, I'm going to push him to say, you know, reach out to this dude. He He's willing to chat and see if they can get any other storied story or story questions to you okay sounds fantastic got plenty of stories and uh yeah really I look forward to keeping in touch for sure chris thank you darren have a wonderful new year and uh i'll, I'll get uh we'll be in touch soon i'm sure look forward to it cool take care cheers mate Thanks again for checking out Chasing Squirrels podcast. Other episodes can be found on iTunes and Podbean. And the music that's taken us out of this podcast is from the artist Roy Star, and the track is called Stints. Thank you.